This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. T-Mobile's $26.5 billion takeover for Sprint has cleared another hurdle after receiving approval by the Justice Department. Part of the plan is that Sprint's prepaid business and Boost Mobile will be divested to Dish Network. So this now combines the number three and number four largest mobile carriers into one company while also creating a new fourth mobile carrier. The Justice Department noted that this will increase competition, especially within the combination of Sprint and T-Mobile with faster 5G networks. Dish also has unused spectrum, which will help it grow the prepaid business. But critics believe this will actually increase prices and lower competition. In addition, a group of state attorneys general have sued to block the merger. With more, we are joined here in studio by Joseph Harrington, professor and chair in the Department of Business, Economic and Public Policy here at the Wharton School. And also joining us on the phone, Eric Gordon, clinical assistant professor at the University of Michigan's Ross School of Business. Joe, great to have you here. Thank you for coming in. That's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Eric, great to have you with us. Oh, it's nice to be back, Dan. All right. So, Joe, give us a sense of of where you think we are in this process of T-Mobile and Sprint trying to come together, because as we were talking before we went on the air, this has been a long time in the works. Yes, it has been. Uh, It's been stop and go, both for the companies and then for the competition authorities. Uh, My own sense in terms of evaluating the merger uh, is that I think it will actually be harmful to consumers. You know, uh, uh, the Department of Justice, as well as the Federal Trade Commission, when they consider a merger, uh, they look on the one hand, how is it going to affect competition? Mm -hmm. Uh, Mergers kind of inherently reduce competition. I mean, you're taking a competitor out of the market. Right. And so then the issue becomes, well, what is the magnitude of that effect on prices? Is it going to be a small increase in price or a large increase in price? Then on the other side of the ledger, of course, the parties will argue that there are efficiencies from that, which can take the form of lower cost which, if passed through to consumers, would mean lower prices, uh, or it could take the form of better services, higher quality. Now, in this case here, uh, I, you know, when you look at this merger, from the start, it just looks uh, kind of intrinsically very anti-competitive. Okay. Going from four to three firms, it's a market with very high entry barriers. So you start from a point where uh, and, and this is the point where Department of Justice started at as well, very skeptical of the merger. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it looked like they were going to oppose it. Uh, then, the, of course, all that is on the side of reducing competition. The efficiency benefits here, of course, have been emphasized that there will be a faster rollout of, of 5G network. Uh, and that will clearly mean you know, better service to consumers. You know, My own view on this is that the anti-competitive effects are – one could be – fairly confident in because Mm -hmm. we have many empirical studies looking at past mergers and going from four to three in this type of market would seem to be something that would indeed lead to much higher prices. The effect of the merger on kind of the speed of investment, that's far more speculative. Mm -hmm. You know, we really, there isn't any hard evidence on that. So you put those two things together. I'm rather skeptical of this from the perspective of the consumers. Eric, your thoughts? Well, I um, I actually agree with Professor Harrington, but in order to keep things interesting, I will eventually uh, try to justify the other side of it. There is always this imbalance, there's, uh, an imbalance of knowledge, and, and I think a credibility uh, imbalance. Uh, any merger that's big enough um, uh, and is and is horizontal, certainly if it's horizontal, um, by by definition is going to reduce competition. And as Professor Harrington said, we know that for sure. The companies always say 
Um, sometimes they put it in the form of a promise. It's a promise that's not enforceable. Uh, it's an estimate that it will save all of this money. The problems with that side of it are severalfold. One, they're estimating the savings. They don't know. Two, uh, as Professor Harrington said, you know, maybe it's lower prices. Maybe it's better services. Maybe it's just higher profits for the people who have merged. An interesting thing that's always troubled me about uh, antitrust law is that um, the companies seem to persuade uh, the Department of Justice, the FTC, and sometimes a judge with their arguments about the savings that will be passed through. But they don't enter into binding agreements that say, here's what we will do about prices. Uh, I, you, you don't see that. So a lot of cheap talk. Um, uh, there are arguments, so I, 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 uh, although I, I don't buy them uh, totally, um, there are some unusual arguments uh, in favor of, of this merger mm -hmm. beyond the usual efficiency one. Let me ask you this, because, uh, uh, Joe, uh, one of the things that is part of this is the divestiture of the prepaid business and Boost Mobile mm -hmm. going to Dish Network. So you have the combination of Sprint and T-Mobile bringing it down to three. But realistically, how much of a factor do we think this other entity would be with Dish holding on to the prepaid business or as well to Boost Mobile? Well, my initial reaction to that was, uh, I mean, that they were trying – what they were doing here is the merger is taking away the most effective fourth competitor and trying to recreate that with, with this remedy with Dish. Right. Uh, and to me, that just sounds inherently flawed. I mean, wouldn't it be better just to retain what is the best fourth competitor, which right, right now is Sprint? So uh, then there's a broader point here as well, which is uh, it's very rare. I mean, we do see instances, but it's very rare for the Department of Justice to, to outright to oppose a merger. Mm -hmm. The remedies have become much more the, the, the kind of common response to this. And, and in fact, the the path here was kind of similar to U.S. Airways, American Airlines. The, okay. the OGA comes out initially very oppositional. But then ends up approving the merger with this remedy. Uh, the problem is there's really no evidence that these remedies work. Uh, and, and, and my problem with their use is where I can see remedies being useful is that if you have a merger which is inherently really, really pro-competitive, but there's a part to it which is really significantly anti-competitive. Mm -hmm. You can see a remedy which kind of carves that out, right. you know, uh, transfers those assets to other companies so, so not to have that anti-competitive effect. Where remedies, there's no evidence that it works, is where the merger is kind of intrinsically anti-competitive. Mm -hmm. So here, yeah. I, I think with the remedy with DISH, is trying to make a kind of a, a bad situation not as bad, right. but it does not solve the problem of the harm to consumers. Eric? Well, I would say at least this for the remedy. There are two kinds of remedies that you see, structural remedies, which is what you have here. You actually give up a piece of the business, and then behavioral remedies where the merging parties say, okay, okay, you're worried about us doing this bad thing like raising prices or doing this other bad stuff, and we promise you we won't do it. Those remedies are even, are even worse than structural ones because at least structural ones, you know it happens. The customers are going over. 
We don't know if they'll stay, but they're going over. Um, the spectrum is going over. It will stay. With the behavioral remedies, now the government has to sort of monitor the companies to see that they're not doing it. Uh, and the behavioral remedies are always written in ways where there's lots of ways to get around them. So it could be even, it could be even worse. Eric, what about from the legal perspective here? Because, you, as I mentioned, you still have the suit coming forward from the state attorneys general to try and block this. Where where do we stand with that? And do we think that that the, that the state attorneys general have grounds to, to truly block this deal? So where we stand is the Department of Justice um, politics, some of the state attorneys general to get them to switch sides and say, look, uh, we, we, we won't be part of a suit. Uh, we, we will sort of implicitly endorse the DOJ settlement. But there are about 14 that did not, including people from some big states like New York and Michigan, the state I'm sitting in today. Um, I think the attorneys general have, uh, I think they have a plausible case. I, I don't you, you never know with judges, um, but it but it's not a joke, and and I don't think it's a I don't think it's a lost cause because because uh, one you know, sort of the intuitive thing that Professor Harrington said uh, if you want to have four strong competitors why didn't you leave things alone uh, Dish as the fourth competitor won't be as strong as Sprint for many, many years. For example, Sprint has more than 50 million subscribers. Right. Uh, in this deal, Dish, the new fourth one, will get 9 million customers, the prepaid customers, um, to claim that that's, uh, that plus spectrum is equivalent to Sprint as a fourth. Uh, you know, they're starting off with less than one fifth of subscribers. So, I think the uh, I, I think the attorneys general of the states may well be able to get more um, out of the emerging parties. Yeah, yeah, that that I think Eric is right on that. Uh, yeah, there certainly is more ground. I mean, I think a compelling case to be made on this. So then, so then, Eric, where is that ground that that could be made up to to have the state attorneys general feeling? more confident about a, a, a combining of, of T-Mobile and Sprint? Well, I think you need a couple of things. You need to start off with a dish that's stronger sort of at day zero, not a company that over the course of a decade might become a strong fourth competitor. Right. I think you also need, um, you need uh, some stronger commitments from dish. So dish says it's going to build out a 5G network that will cover 70% of the U.S. by 2023, and it's agreed to a 2.2, up to a $2.2 billion fine if it doesn't do it. Dish notoriously has not um, built, not used spectrum it has. Mm -hmm. uh, Dish already has tons of spectrum. Think of spectrum as the capacity you need in order to have a network that's carrying data back and forth. Dish already has bought tons of that over the years and has basically stockpiled it. So uh, the idea that this is going to light a fire under Dish and Dish is going to become well-financed and have the cash uh, to do this, I, I don't know. You know. Keep in mind that Sprint, uh, Dish isn't getting the spectrum for free. It's paying $5 billion for the spectrum. Joe, before we went on there, you brought up an interesting story to me mm -hmm. about the fact that, that this merger kind of takes you back to the days of the long-distance telephone and some of the, uh, of the combinations that we saw back 20, 30 years ago. No, that's right. Uh, and what kind of led me to that is one of my real concerns here is that the, the 
kind of reduction in competition for the merger, I think, is potentially much more than simply going from four to three firms. I think there's a real risk of what's called uh, coordinated effects, which is that the firms, the three, three remaining firms are going to be very similar, uh, that there will be incentives for them to try to accommodate each other mm-hmm. and engage in what's known as tacit collusion. It could take the form of kind of price leadership. Uh, and, and, and kind of related to that, I, I think a real concern here is T-Mobile, which has been a very aggressive competitor. Its incentives change a lot with this merger. Now it becomes kind of comparable to AT&T and Verizon. Uh, so where that draws a parallel with long-distance telephone is we go back uh, to when it was AT&T – MCI and Sprint, that uh, there has been some very good studies showing that what that basically, that, that those three firms uh, kind of had what described their conduct mm-hmm. was uh, a form of tacit collusion, whereby AT&T would be the price leader, MCI and Sprint would kind of, kind of match those prices or come close to them, and there wasn't much in terms of price competition. So I'm concerned that a similar type of arrangement might emerge with these three companies. Eric? Yeah, I think there are two good points embedded in that. For reasons nobody understands, certainly no arithmetic reason, um, it's widely believed and widely experienced that going from four competitors to three is a difference in quality, not just a difference in numbers. It isn't just you have one less. Um, this, this ability to collude seems to go up. Nobody's ever been able to explain to me why it's you know from four to three instead of five to four, but it's uh, it's widely believed, and I think with some justification. And, and I think the other point's a really big point. Um, uh, Verizon and AT and T were very happy to not compete very much. They were very happy to do things like raise prices. They're very happy to say you have to have two-year contracts with us. They were very happy to, within a very short period of time, both eliminate unlimited plans until T-Mobile said, wait, we'll have no contracts. Wait, we'll give you unlimited. So T-Mobile being the small, scrappy, we're fighting for every customer. Right. Uh, the, the guys who, if you walk by their store in the mall, they, they put out a hook and try to drag you in. Having that scrappy, <laughs> that scrappy person fighting to grow um, is what forced uh, AT&T and Verizon to say, okay, we'll go back and offer unlimited services. Okay, you don't have to have two-year contracts. Eric, how does the, the, the onset of 5G play into this as well? So I think that's the big factor in the DOJ's mind. Um, T-Mobile and Sprint did something interesting. After years of saying that they were viable, especially T-Mobile, I'm actually looking at T-Mobile's uh, second quarter 2019 financial report, and the CEO standing in front of a big backdrop that says, unstoppable. Um, after years of, of sort of bragging about their bright future, their argument is we're not big enough to make the investment in 5G. Well, 5G is going to be an enormous investment, but we're not talking about little companies. Um, T-Mobile is uh, controlled by Deutsche Telekom. 
T-Mobile on its own has a market cap of somewhere between 65 and 70 billion. Uh, Sprint has a market cap of 30 billion, and is backed by SoftBank, the the company, the the investment people from Japan, who raised 100 billion dollar fund and now are raising a second hundred billion dollar fund. This isn't like Professor Harrington and Professor Gordon's phone companies where <laughs> you know we're having trouble scraping up the money. Uh, but that was the argument. The argument was you're either going to have two competitors in 5G because we won't be able to compete, or you'll have three. And DOJ bought that. Joe? Yeah, no, I, I really want to underscore that point. And, and keep in mind here as well, you know, even if you concede that the investment will occur faster, I mean, it's it's hard to imagine that if we just kept this structure that they're not going to go into 5G. I mean, every yeah. they've gone into every new generation. Sure. I mean, they have to be to be competitive. Yep. So, so that maybe at best you're talking about speeding it up. So that's a temporary that's a temporary gain. Mm-hmm. You you lose that fourth competitor. That's really a permanent loss. I mean, and that comes back to the fact that the, the entry barriers are just immense for this industry. No one's going to go out there and buy a, as a you know greenfield entrant, buy all the spectrum, put in all the infrastructure. This, yeah. So this is the structure we're, we're left with. But as you mentioned uh, before, they they talk about the synergies that may be able to come through by by bringing those two companies together. That doesn't even. Uh, you know, impact enough significantly coming together and, and bringing this down to a three, basically a three company sector. Yeah. And synergy is a great word that they like, you know, companies like to use in the context of merger evaluations. But going back to a, a point that Eric made earlier, uh, there's no accountability or very little accountability for the claim deficiencies. You know, mm-hmm. once that merger is approved, and yes, there could be some conditions on it, behavioral, structural, but once that's done, I mean, I mean, that's it. And maybe it pans out well for consumers as claim, maybe it doesn't, but there's no accountability on that. You're listening to Knowledge of Wharton here on Sirius XM 132, business radio powered by the Wharton School. Dan Loney in our studios in Philadelphia, along with Joseph Harrington, professor and chair of the Department of Business, Economic, and Public Policy here at the Wharton School, also joined on the phone by Eric Gordon of the University of Michigan Ross School of Business, a professor there. Your comments, again, at 844-942-7866. Or if you'd like, send us a comment on Twitter, at BizRadio132, or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. One of the things that I think we should also throw in here is the fact that President Trump has been very forward on the commentary about how he wants the United States to be at the top with 5G. And it, I think, will make some people wonder if the approval by the Justice Department on this has something to do with some of those statements that have been made by the president in the past. Yeah, I, I don't know how the, the, the sausage is made, but, but we definitely have, have observed a a, a kind of a, a, a real watering down of the kind of opposition of the DOJ to this merger from what they were initially saying. So, but Eric, yes. I, I have another uh, more cynical um, idea about what's going on based on absolutely nothing but my cynicism. Um, and it's this. The DOJ has been getting smacked down pretty badly in antitrust. So they actually opposed AT&T, Time Warner. And not only did they lose that case, but the judge, Judge Leon, um, wrote a 172-page opinion in which he spared no criticism of the government's handling of the case. Now, if you are a government antitruster and your next step is to be a high-paid partner in a law firm, this is not the sort of thing that's good for you. 
if you settle a case, both sides declare victory. The companies say, this is going to be great for our shareholders. Um, and the DOJ, uh, the government side says, we extracted a lot out of them. This is a real victory. If you go into the courtroom, somebody loses. And, and my, my cynical suspicion, and again, it's not even a suspicion. My, my cynical comment is that the softening is that um, uh, who wants to go in and take not just a loss, mm-hmm. but an actual beatdown in which the judge basically says, you guys really brought in a crummy case and then you botched it up. Joe? So? Well, uh, 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 that's, 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 it's an interesting kind of theory, which I would not be too quick to dismiss. Yeah. Uh, however, I, I guess I probably see this more embedded in terms of a, a, a long-term uh, kind of uh, lenient policy with regards to yeah. mergers. Uh, you know, this, um, I mean, I, many economists have kind of pointed out that I mean, a lot of mergers have been approved in the last 20 years that would not have been approved in the previous 20 years. And uh, this feeds into a kind of a general concern about the reduction of competition in this country, uh, for which there's pretty strong evidence. One of the things we haven't talked a lot about are the other two companies, AT&T mm-hmm. and Verizon who are the, the, the well-known leaders in, in this area right now. Any impact on them from this? Well, I, I, I tell you, I mean, I, I, I would see this as a big plus for them. Uh, T-Mobile, you know, as, as Eric described, in all the innovations they made in terms of their aggressiveness, uh, I think the incentives for them to pursue that are much less. Uh, so I, I would think AT&T and Verizon would say, okay, now T-Mobile is going to be kind of one of us. They're going to be more accommodative, less mm-hmm. aggressive. Uh, we can make more money as a result of that. Eric? No, I think they'll do what close competitors often do. They'll make a show of competing without competing in a way that significantly benefits consumers. It's pretty easy to do the show. You run lots of ads and stuff. Um, But I I think we'll see offerings to consumers that are very similar to each other. Uh, And I think they're they're, they're not unhappy with this. So, Eric, how similar would some of these offerings be to the consumers? And, And would you be looking at basically something where all three companies would be working basically off of the kind of the same playbook a little bit? You know, I think they'll basically be similar. Here's how you dress it up to make it look different. You have one person say, okay, you get three gigs for $40, and somebody else says you get four gigs for $50. So it doesn't look like you have identical plans. But in terms of sort of the economics of the consumers, um, there is no real, uh, there is no real huge choice, as um, which is Professor Harrington pointed out. T-Mobile, uh, in its renegade days, which I fear I'm going to miss, in its renegade days, um, it looked at what AT&T and Verizon were doing, and they said, "All right, we're going to give you something very different." Right. What is the expectation then that, con- that the consumer should probably have with this, at, at least right now? Because, again, we still probably don't have the, the final check on the line to move this forward. But what should the consumer be thinking about, do you believe, Joe? Well, uh, unfortunately, is expect to pay higher prices. You know, uh, now, that's it. It, it. You know, it might pan out that we'll get 5G quicker and yeah. and. These synergies won't just be ephemeral. They'll actually be real. Uh, that's yet to, to tell. But I, I think the consumers have to be prepared that there's going to be less options out there. Um, you know, the, the 
searching is going to be less effective because it's going to be, as Eric said, kind of very comparable offerings. And as I said, at the end of the day, I think it's going to be higher prices. Eric? So here's an unfortunate coincidence and neat trick. When we start seeing 5G, it will probably be priced differently because it's a, it's a different value service. So some of the effect that Professor Harrington is talking about, I think is going to be camouflaged by the fact that we're moving to you know, a, new, a new system that's going to be much faster and have different benefits, and therefore it can look like, well, this is because it's 5G, which is a ton better than what you now have. Yeah, because that does make it yeah. indeed makes it difficult to see are if there are efficiency gains, whether or not they're actually passed through to consumers. Right. Okay, quality goes up, price goes up, and it is hard to to kind of assess that. And it's, and it's it's going to be, and what that means is it's possible for them to raise price a lot more than quality, you know, and and increase profits and and harm consumers as a result. Gentlemen, thanks very much for your time. Greatly appreciate okay. it. Thank you. Thank you, Dan. Thank you, Joseph Harrington from here at the Wharton School, Eric Gordon at the University of Michigan. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.